Well, let's go ahead and dive in to our third lecture on social Trinitarianism, uh, a, a very disturbing error in the theology proper of the federal vision. In our first lecture on this aspect of the federal vision, we considered biblical Trinitarianism uh, from a confessional reformed standpoint. I'm not going to rehash all of those things. We looked at social Trinitarianism in itself, uh, which seeks to redefine the biblical doctrine of the Trinity in order to make the nature and character and tri-personality of God into the archetype of human society and relationships such that the one essence of God, which has been historically confessed by God's people throughout the ages, is redefined as a unified relationship or a covenant or a community or a society or a kingdom between the three persons each of whom possesses a distinct mind, will, and state of consciousness. And we've seen that this view has been espoused and promoted by some of the most liberal and unbelieving theologians in recent Western history. And for whatever reason, uh, the federal vision has hitched itself up to uh, a particular variety of social Trinitarianism by way of the teachings of federal visionist Ralph Smith. And this teaching has made its way into the 2007 Federal Vision Joint Statement, where the federal visionists say this, quote, we affirm that the triune God is the archetype of all covenantal relations. All faithful theology and life is conducted in union with an imitation of the way God eternally is, end quote. That statement was signed by Ralph Smith, Doug Wilson, and many other federal visionists. Uh, in terms of recent years, Doug Wilson, in 2017, though he distanced himself from the federal vision movement, almost like somebody trying to walk away from a hit-and-run car accident, but he says, quote, I would still affirm everything I signed off on in the federal vision statement, end quote. Canon Press that claims to be the outfitters of the Reformation, published Ralph Smith's books, The Eternal Covenant, and his other book, Paradox and Truth, both books on the Trinity from 2003, and they have other resources from Ralph Smith, Ralph Smith on their website. Ralph Smith has his own website where he expounds on and defends his particular view of the Trinity at berith.org, B-E-R-I-T-H.org, which is the Hebrew word for covenant, and Ralph Smith uh, is a big fan of using that word covenant in almost, you know, on, on almost every page and every paragraph, every chapter or subheading that he writes. So we've seen from the standpoint of Ralph Smith's teaching that he downplays the distinction between the ontological and economic trinity in order to introduce a radically different understanding of the ontological trinity. So he's saying we can argue from what God has done in history to who God is in himself without the safeguards of scripture. And so historically we would say yes, God reveals who he is in himself and even the relationships of the persons of the trinity by way of what he does in history through creation and redemption, but 
in order to substantiate a connection between what he does and who he is in himself, there needs to be biblical evidence that God not only has done this in history, but that what he's done in history is somehow reflected and manifested in who he is. And so we have scripture verses that speak of Christ as the eternally begotten Son of God. Uh, We see him also conceived and born by the work of the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And, And so his sonship in that messianic sense, we can connect with his eternal sonship because we have verses on both sides of the ledger. But with Ralph Smith, he's saying we can just look at things God does in history, ways in which God operates, and we can argue back into the character of God. And he goes even further than that in saying that because God's character in himself is the archetype and the original from which all human relationships derive, therefore we can argue from human institutions and relationships in themselves as bearing the image of God and argue back into the ontological character of God in himself and the relationships of the persons. Now, the problem with that and the problem with the Federal Vision statement on that is that if God's character and relationships in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Spirit are the archetype and the original of every created relationship or institution, and if God in himself is a covenant and and the one essence, the unity of God in three persons is a covenant that from which flows all of the, the, the covenants in history, and the covenantal relationships in history, it creates all sorts of problems. For instance, we have covenantal hierarchy between husbands and wives and parents and children. There's covenantal hierarchy in the family. There's covenantal hierarchy in the state. Uh, There's covenantal hierarchy in the church. Does that mean that there's covenantal hierarchy in the relationship between the father and the son? So in, in many ways, this federal vision teaching is just plain sloppy and you get the sense in the most charitable sense they're just incompetent and um, as opposed to being intentionally heretical but it leads to a tritheistic and subordinationistic and really a heretical view of the trinity so it's very dangerous Um, ralph smith having blurred the lines of ontology and uh, economy in the trinity He then argues that God's essential unity must be grounded in an ontological covenant of love between the persons of the Trinity, and he uses language that suggests that the the unity between the persons is this voluntary commitment of love, using similar language to, say, a marriage where two become one. Very troubling. Uh, Smith defines the Trinitarian covenant in terms suggestive of eternal subordination. We saw that under point three, the first quote, speaking of hierarchy as essential to the co- to a covenant, and then applying that language to God in terms of the covenant. Uh, also, Smith defines the Trinitarian covenant in terms suggestive of tritheism and divine composition. Again, the three becoming one through a voluntary association of love, as if God's essential unity were grounded in a mere commitment of love which joins the three persons of God in a community of life as the ultimate kingdom, a covenantal society of love. 
And as you can see in your handout, most of the key phrases from that statement are in quotes from Ralph Smith. Uh, we've seen that Ralph Smith asserts that the essential divine attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit differ according to the nature of the relationship, and we've observed that this actually creates a quadrinity. So if you look at the quotes under section 5, you'll see that he's saying that the Father's righteousness is different from the Son's righteousness. We're thinking of God in himself. He, he talks about the Father's love is different from the Son's love, not just in terms of the one loving, but in terms of the love itself. And so he, he uh, makes it clear that God's attributes, the attributes of the divine nature, are differentiated among the three persons. So what do you end up having? You have the one undifferentiated divine nature, and so there's the righteousness of the divine nature, which does not have a personal distinctive element. Then you have the righteousness of the Father that is distinct as fatherly righteousness. Then you have the righteousness of the Son, which is a distinct filial righteousness. Then you have the righteousness of the Spirit, which is a distinct spiritual or pneumatic righteousness. That's the implication. I'm not going to rehash the quotes. You can see them there in your handout on section 5, which is on page 3. And this is very troubling because now you have four sets of attributes. It's a quadrinity. Not just, uh, we could say, in many respects, his language suggests polytheism and tritheism, but here you've got, uh, you've got four, fourness, uh, if you follow the logic out. And again, we're not saying everyone who affirms the federal vision statement is a heretic, but we're saying this promotes heresy and, you know, it, it's, it's irresponsible. And I want to, before I dive in here to finish up, you'll know that I mentioned in our sermon this morning some quotations from Doug Wilson that he's been posting on his blog concerning justification. And so uh, this morning's sermon in many ways is a response to Doug Wilson's erroneous teaching on that subject and I that took me so long as you know in preaching that sermon that I didn't get to finish all of my material and one verse I wanted to bring up that I'll insert here not so much with respect to Wilson but with respect to the federal vision as a whole and especially with respect to Ralph Smith Romans 16 verse 17 now I urge you brethren note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So there's a pattern of sound words from Scripture and from the true Christian church, God's believing people throughout the ages in formulating, articulating, defending the truth of God, the faith once delivered to the saints. There, there is a grammar, a vocabulary, a pattern of sound words. And when you find people rising to prominence in the church and dividing the church, confusing the church, creating stumbling blocks in the church, teaching things contrary to the doctrine which we've all learned from the Bible and which the church has historically confessed, especially with respect to the Trinity. Uh, we're not here to reinvent the wheel. The Trinity is a doctrine that has been established, uh, we could almost say time immemorial throughout the Christian church. And so those who would divide and offend and cause the church to stumble into heresy 
and it would invent new terms and new ideas and new, uh, just all kinds of novelties, contrary to the received doctrine that we've learned. We need to avoid them. He says, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. And he goes on to say that the God of peace will crush Satan. Who is it that's confusing the people of God through these teachers who invent their own system of doctrine and their own vocabulary and divide and offend the church through teaching contrary to what's been received? Um, These are the ministers in some sense, to some degree, of Satan himself. They're at least following his agenda. And the God of peace will crush Satan and all of his agents under your feet shortly. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So, again, uh, we advocate the Reformation where the light of the gospel shone forth against the predominant teachings of the church at that time in their errors. But uh, I think it's fair to say with the doctrine of the Trinity This is a doctrine that has been historically confessed by the church, going back to the early ecumenical councils and the early church fathers. This is an ancient landmark that we ought not to move. And those who move it do so at their own peril. And we ought to leave them alone, avoid them. Like John the Apostle, who didn't want to go into the the bathhouse with... um, the one heretic, uh, Marcion, I think, who was in there. He didn't want to go in, lest the judgment of God fall on Marcion and collapse the building at that moment. So um, be careful of these kind of teachers. Now, section 6, Smith asserts that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. Let me stop here. Buckle your safety belts. Buckle your safety belts. That's all I can say. I wish I had buckled mine before I read this stuff. Um, Anyway, Smith asserts, this is my statement, but we'll get to the quote. Smith asserts that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father to the Son, then from the Son back to the Father, and that the Son is eternally generated from the Father to the Spirit, then sent back from the Spirit to the Father, thereby creating a sequential quadruple procession. That's my characterization of it, a sequential quadruple procession. But uh, historically and biblically, we confess that the, from the Father, we have the eternal generation of the Son. So the Father begets the Son. The Father and the Spirit, sorry, the fa- see, I'm getting in trouble here with this. The Father and the Son uh, spirate the Holy Spirit. So, so the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that from all eternity. The Father does not proceed nor is begotten by any of the other three persons. Okay, So you've got one begetting, the Father begets the Son, you've got a double procession through a singular act of spiration, The Father and the Son in a singular act of spiration uh, from which the Spirit proceeds. Double procession. 
from that singular act of spiration by the Father and the Son. That's the Orthodox biblical teaching. That's the confessional reformed position. And Smith is saying that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father to the Son, then from the Son back to the Father, and the Son is eternally generated from the Father to the Spirit, then sent back, so on and so forth. This is tough to follow, but let's listen to these quotes. Quote, this is Ralph Smith. The Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father to the Son, and then from the Son back to the Father. In this way, the communion of the persons is complete. The Spirit proceeds as the gift of covenantal love. The dynamic of the Spirit's procession from the Father to the Son and from the Son back to the Father is therefore a covenantal dynamic. God is eternally active, the Father always sending the Spirit of covenantal love to His Son and the Son always responding. The Spirit is always moving in covenantal procession, end quote. So the key word here that's so problematic is right there in the second line. The Spirit proceeds as the gift of covenantal love. It's not the being of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, okay? It, that's the, the, the language here suggests that the Spirit is a gift of covenantal love from the Father to the Son, okay? And, and, and that's problematic because God is one. God is eternal, coextensive, coeternal, okay? The, the Father is not giving the Spirit to the Son because that almost presupposes you've already, you already have the Holy Spirit. And so he's uh, spirating the Spirit to give to the Son, whereas the Bible teaches that the Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of His Son. There is one spiration from which the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And He doesn't proceed as a gift to one of the other persons of the Trinity. His procession is His subsistence in the divine being. It's Him. It's not Him as a gift to somebody else. He as a subsistence in the divine being simply proceeds. Uh, It's the origin of His subsistence in the divine being from all eternity. Now, but it gets worse here. Listen, I think it'll be more clear why we're troubled by this. Quote, we need to add that the Son is also the gift of love from the Father to the Spirit. Let's stop there. So the Father is giving the, the Spirit as a gift to the Son. And we're not talking about the Spirit in some economic sense manifested in history. We're talking about the the who-ness of the Spirit, the subsistence, the share in the divine nature itself of the Spirit. The Father is giving the Spirit as a gift to the Son, and He's giving the Son as a gift to the Spirit. Now, if the Spirit proceeds from the Son, how can the Son's subsistence be a gift to the Spirit? There is a logical order and priority in the persons of the Godhead. They are co-eternal, and yet there is an order in the uh, 
in their subsistence. The Father is of none. We always start with the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. His subsistence is first, it's primary, and then from the Father is begotten the Son, and from the Father and the Son proceeds the Holy Spirit. Now, it's co-eternal, co-extensive, equal in power and glory, no question, but there's an order to it, a logical order. So, if the Spirit proceeds from the Son, how can the, the subsistence of the Son be a gift to the already subsisting Spirit? It's incoherent, it's illogical, it destroys the historic grammar and vocabulary of biblical Trinitarianism. So again, he says we need to add that the Son is also the gift of love from the Father to the Spirit. For just as the Father sent the Spirit into the world, He also sent the Son. If the one implies an eternal sending, why not the other? The the problem here is the Father in history sent the Spirit to anoint the Son. But we don't see the Father in history sending the Son to act upon the Spirit in that same way. Okay? There is a logic to the economy of redemption that reflects back into eternity. He is being reckless and unwarranted in these arguments. He goes on, It seems to me, notice I underlined that, be careful, any books on the Trinity where you see that phrase. Um, you might want to find another book. It seems to me, says Smith, our doctrine of the Trinity would be more biblically rounded if we saw the Father not only sending the Spirit to the Son, who sends the Spirit back in reciprocal love, but also understood the Father to send the Son to the Spirit, who sends the Son back in reciprocal love. The dynamic of the Trinity is the dynamic of covenantal love expressed in mutual sending, receiving, and responding in reciprocal love, but also understood the Father to send the Son to the Spirit, who sends the Son back in reciprocal... I think I've doubled the quote there at the end. But you you see, this is a lot of moving parts here. None of this is taught in the history of the church. None of this is taught in the Bible. The Father sending the Son to the Spirit and back to the Son and to the Father and, and round and round we go. You know, Arius probably could have started a lot of his treatises by, it seems to me our doctrine of God would be more biblically rounded, well-rounded, if we added these innovations. Last page here. Section 7. Smith asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, quote, one great person, end quote. And I'm going to resist the temptation to, to comment on that phrase because we could use that in many different ways in our society. But what he's saying here is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actually one person. We believe that there is one God, one divine essence, subsisting in three persons, but Smith is asserting that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one great person. Quote, it seems to me, well, there that phrase again keeps cropping up, It seems to me that the mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity, their absolute ontological interpenetration, may be said to constitute them as a single person with a single consciousness. Of course, this does not in any way compromise the vitality of each person. Please note that there is equivocation here on the word person, end quote. 
second quotation, he says, quote, these three great persons are also one great person, end quote. Now, if you've ever heard R.C. Sproul teach on the Trinity, he always makes the point that when we say God is one and we say God is three, we're not saying that he's one and three in the same sense, and therefore it's not a contradiction. His oneness is with respect to his essence, his threeness with respect to his personal subsistence. And so it's not a contradiction. Uh, We don't have time to get into Cornelius Van Til and some of the statements that he made in his writings and how this probably affected Smith, but we're just dealing with Smith here saying that this is unwarranted and reckless to say that God is three persons and one person. To say that God is three great persons and also one great person is highly confusing and the fact that he acknowledges as if by a mere concession that he's equivocating. In other words, he's saying God's three persons in a different sense than he's one person. Well, then why use the same word? Isn't the whole point of Trinitarian language that we can make it clear to people that the oneness and threeness are two different senses, two different terms, two different entities. He's not one and three with respect to the same thing, but if you use the same word, that is highly damaging to the consistency of articulating the Trinity. These three great persons are also one great person. Uh, Even if what he means by that is anywhere near the orthodox position, he should simply stick to the, the pattern of sound words that God is one essence subsisting in three persons. What he's done here is dangerous, reckless, and a stumbling block before God's people at best. Uh, We're thankful that he notes the equivocation. Equivocation is when you use terms in different ways, often in terms of deception. People will do that. But uh, why we're bringing in confusing, equivocating terms into the most central doctrine of the Christian faith is beyond me. So this is a a big red flag. Section 8. Seeking to avoid the heretical implications of his stated position, Smith redefines the term covenant to mean a necessary mutual ontological indwelling, which implies a mutual commitment, but not a voluntary agreement. So, in his later writings especially, but also in his 2003 book, he anticipates that people are going to criticize him for using language of the persons of the Trinity being joined together as if they were pre-existing entities composed together, which is a heresy. Or that, that he speaks of the Trinity in its essence as a covenant. People are going to say, well, that's, that's tritheism. Three separate entities who choose willingly, voluntarily to join together and so on and so forth. He anticipates this, but instead of... Um, pulling the plug on his website and getting rid of all his books, he continues forward, even though he sort of anticipates that this is where it's leading, he tries to salvage it. Quote, having said this, we must add that in God, the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity is not covenantal in the sense of being an agreement. Let me stop there. Listen, we use the term covenant to refer to an agreement. Everybody uses it that way. Even in his definition of the covenant at certain points, 
he's drawing on marriage, he's drawing on all these covenantal agreements. To say it's not an agreement, but to use a word that essentially conveys that just shows you it's part and parcel of the federal vision as a whole. I mean, are they intentionally using words that are likely to confuse people? I don't know, but, um, you know, if they're not attempting to do it, it's, it's, you know, you'd almost have to believe in that, you know, evolution is random or something to believe that. It seems pretty obvious. There's, uh, whether we can call it intelligent design is another question, but it seems that this is their intention because they keep doing it. Three persons, one person. Uh, God is a covenant, but not an agreement. All right, continuing, quote, if we begin by defining the covenant as an agreement, then thinking of the covenantal relationship among the persons may indeed seem odd, as if they existed separately and decided to become one. But agreement is not a covenant bond, sorry, agreement is not a biblical definition of covenant, especially as it applies to the persons of the Trinity. I think we should say that in God, the covenant bond is the mutual ontological indwelling of the persons of the Trinity, the mutual commitment of love, and the fellowship the three have with one another express the covenant bond. So now he's really trying to pivot back to the historic language. Well, God's unity is this mutual indwelling within the essence of the three persons, and the love of their commitment, it flows out of that. Interesting. He goes on, this is the way God exists necessarily. It is not a voluntary agreement. The covenant among the persons is ontological. It is of the essence of who God is and how he necessarily exists as three persons, end quote. So he calls it a commitment, but it's not a voluntary agreement. It's confusing. God is not the author of disorder, but of order. This is disorderly. It's, it's likely to trip people up. And really, it undercuts the entire basis of the federal vision statement, which says God's being is the basis of covenant relations in this life. Are we going to say that marriage is not a voluntary agreement? Are we going to say that marriage is not, uh, covenantally speaking, it does not involve an agreement? Uh, that almost leads you to the Baptistic view that if two single people have relations with one another, they're married in God's sight. It's just this mutual indwelling without any agreement. The whole thing is convoluted. He says again, quote, the biblical language of the covenant and the most relevant examples of covenant relationships suggest that it is not adequate to depict the covenant among the persons of the Trinity as an agreement. The marriage relationship, used often as the picture of God's relationship with Israel and the church, is not a mere agreement for the sake of accomplishing a particular purpose. It is a relationship in which two dwell together as one, give them, giving them, um, give themselves for one another's blessing and seek one another's honor, end quote. So marriage now is not an agreement? or it's not a mere agreement, so you're acknowledging that it's an agreement, then how does marriage flow out of the relationships of the person of the Trinity? If it does, then the Trinity is a voluntary agreement and we become tritheists. If it doesn't, why are you putting this statement that the Trinity is the basis of our, of our covenantal relationships such as marriage? Uh, you, you really can't get out of that, the horns of that dilemma. Section 9. 
Smith's stated goal in modifying the doctrine of the Trinity is to create a central dogma for the Christian worldview that will banish the covenant of works and promote Christian culture. I am not going to read those quotations for the sake of time, but you can read those three quotations where he makes it very clear his whole agenda here with these books on the Trinity and the articles on his website, his agenda is to come up with a definition of God's covenantal character in himself that then can be leveraged against the doctrine of the covenant of works so that because of this newfangled Trinitarian formula, we can now come up with a newfangled covenantal doctrine of man in his relationship to God prior to the fall. So just like the social Trinitarians of the past, you can see his agenda here is very clear. His agenda is not an accurate doctrine of the Trinity. That's just a means to an end of winning a debate over the federal vision idea of the covenant. Final section here. Smith rejects the teaching of the Westminster Standards in favor of 20th century authors such as Herman Hoeksema, Abraham Kuyper, and various federal visionists. Let me just read these quotes and we'll be done. Uh, So you can see he's rejecting Westminster. Quote, the Westminster Confession is in need of revision. End quote. You see that? We'll let that speak for itself for a variety of reasons. Secondly, quote, Dutch theologians Abraham Kuyper and Herman Hoeksema, in contrast with the Presbyterian branch of the Reformed tradition, view the covenant as more than a mere means and take the eternal covenant between the persons of the Trinity as the standard and archetype, the covenantal model, end quote. So whether or not that's true, I think there's at least some truth to the emphasis of some of these quotes from Hoeksema and Kuiper. But uh, I suppose there are a few people out there that, that are in love with Herman Hoeksema and Abraham Kuiper. But understand, uh, those of us that come from the Presbyterian branch of the Reformed tradition, we're being told to switch sides and, and jump on the bandwagon of Abraham Kuiper and Herman Hoeksema, uh, w- which is just an interesting combination. Hoeksema the uh, hyper-Calvinist, and Kuiper, the cultural um, worldview guru, so to speak. But these are the guys that he he wants us to join with. He says, quote, Hoeksema defines the covenant as the bond of God with himself, and he sees its essence as the communion of friendship among the persons of the Trinity, end quote. So for a variety of reasons, beware of Herman Hoeksema. Uh, beware of Herman Hoeksema. We could talk about his doctrine of uh, the covenant and of the gospel. Uh, It's interesting because followers of Hoeksema are hardcore opponents of the federal vision. And yet, on some of these points, federal vision is relying on Hoeksema. So just be be leery of him on this. Be be especially leery and weary of Hoeksema on uh, the issue of the free offer of the gospel, etc., Finally, uh, quote, this essay was originally provoked by a comment made by James Jordan. I'm going to leave it there. More could be said, but uh, based on what we've learned about James Jordan, this really is the epitaph on the doctrine of the Trinity as proposed and promoted by Ralph Smith. 
quote, this essay was originally provoked by a comment made by James Jordan, end quote. If that doesn't speak volumes concerning where this is coming from and where it's leading, then quite frankly, uh, I have not done my job in these lectures. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for revealing to us your truth concerning your character, the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are the ever-blessed God, and we pray that you would enable us uh, to triumph with Christ over all false doctrine, trampling the serpent underfoot, that deceptive serpent of old who played deceptive word games with Eve uh, to lure her away from the truth that you revealed to her. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us, anoint us with your spirit to lead us into all truth, that we indeed may know you and that we may understand uh, what it means when you say that those who fear Jehovah, to them will he reveal the secrets of his covenant. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.